HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Thurman Maple Days. Celebrate flowing of sap in the Adirondacks, self-guiding to seven sites for talks, tours, tastes, and old-fashioned friendliness. For more information, visit ThurmanMapleDays.com. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. everybody, and welcome to The Farm Report, where we talk about the nitty-gritty of agriculture and food production each week. I'm your host, Holly Cedarholm, broadcasting live from the Heritage Radio Network in Bushwick, Brooklyn. With me today is Andre Loy, calling in all the way from Australia. Andre has over 40 years of experience in organic agriculture. Along with his wife, Julia, he runs a tropical fruit orchard in Queensland, Australia. His experience goes beyond pest control, weed management, marketing, and sales on his own farm to include work with grower organizations and education in his role as president of iFoam Organics International, which is the only global umbrella organization of the organic world. His breadth of experience is also geographically diverse. His involvement in organic issues has taken him across Asia, Europe, the Americas, and Africa. He has written and published widely on climate change, the environment, and the health benefits of organic. Andre is the author of The Myths of Safe Pesticides, published in 2014, which we will talk about later on today's show. Andre, welcome to the Farm Report. Thank you, Holly. It's wonderful to be speaking to you. Yeah, um, well, to start, what time is it there? It's... uh Four o'clock in the morning on Friday, oh we're 14 God. hours ahead of New York. Yeah, so we're speaking, we're looking into the future right now. <laughs> well, exactly, <laughs> you're speaking to the future. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much for um, accommodating our schedule. So I wanted to jump right in um, and talk a little bit about climate change. So I wanted to explore the relationship between agriculture and climate change. And to start, I'm just going to get our listeners up to a, a common um, platform and, and sort of do a nutshell of climate change. So it's a change in global weather and patterns attributed to high and continually rising levels of carbon in the atmosphere due largely to the consumption of fossil fuels. This resulting increase in CO2 in the atmosphere 
um, put quite simply results in warming global temperatures, which are forecasted for some dramatic rises. And I was looking over some of the historical data, um, which was amassed through Climate Central. And historically, the records show temperatures fluctuating at 0.2 degrees Fahrenheit. So a tenth of a degree you know, in in that range. So two-tenths of a degree Fahrenheit per decade over the past 1,000 years. And then pretty abruptly over the past 40 years, that number had doubled to 0.4 degrees Fahrenheit per decade. And projections say in 2020, the rate of warming is going to reach 0.7 degrees Fahrenheit per decade. Um, So I have been wanting to get you on the line um, since basically last fall when I saw that you had attended um, the COP21 climate conference held in Paris in November and December of 2015. So the goal of that convergence was to produce a new international agreement on climate change, strategizing on how to limit the global rise in temperature to keep it below, um, the, of course it's in Celsius, um, two degrees Celsius, which I think is about um, 35 degrees Fahrenheit by 2050. So can you talk um, about some of the work that you were doing while you were in Paris? I understand that you were campaigning for recognition of land use in relation to climate change while on the ground. Yes, we we have been very active in campaigning for farming in the, the, the climate change meeting since Copenhagen in 2009. One of the reasons why I'd like to explain what why this is such an important issue, a lot of people will say, look, if it's just going to be a few degrees warmer, so what? The reality is it's the extremes in changes in climate that are affecting agriculture now. So what what we're seeing all around the world are these longer droughts. They're happening more often, they're more extreme. And then when these droughts are broken, it's usually heavy, destructive rain, very short bursts of rain. The reliability of seasons are being disrupted, and this is critical for agriculture. So we, we need to do two things. We need to, one, reverse climate change and bring the climate back to the way it should be. And in the meantime, we need to make sure we have a resilient climate resilient farming systems so that farmers can be viable in climate change. And it's very important for everyone else because if we can't do this, the world can face a severe food shortage. So so, so this is a major issue. Um, Yeah, so I I know that here in the Northeast um, U.S., the weather has been trending towards drier summers and wetter falls. And like you said, some more extreme participation events in New York over the past several years, we've had some pretty large storms that have swept through and resulted in flooding um, in farmlands, particularly have been pretty, pretty hard hit, but in general. Um, so I think, like you said, there's a couple of things going on here. There's ways to be resilient farming and farmers. So that way, if a precipitation event happens or if Um, you're experiencing some drier climate, you can still keep on keeping on with your livelihood that's based on the land. Um, And then there's also the reversal of this, the um, the exacerbating circumstances, which is the the 
um, warming temperatures overall by these carbon emissions. And interestingly enough, agriculture relates um, is, is sort of a, a an answer and also a um, sort of uh, a complication to climate change. So, what um, what do you see as how? Um, let's start with the resilient farming. So. Um, how can resilient farming help farmers deal with climate change and how can resilient farming help to maybe curb the effects of climate change um, to keep happening? There's, there's a range of strategies that we can use, but one of the most important is increasing soil organic matter. Soil organic matter uh, increases the amount of water that you can hold in the soil. For people to understand, for each um, 1% increase in soil organic matter, you can capture 16,000 um, so 16, gallons of water per acre. So what, essentially if it rains and you have less than 1%, what it, what it means is your soil can only absorb 16,000 gallons. The extra runs off goes into the creeks and rivers. If we can bring that up to 5 or 6% organic matter, and that's, that's what most soils were at one stage, we can start capturing around 100,000 gallons of water per acre at a rain event. The, so what that means is we can capture the rain very efficiently and then um, when we go into the dry period, we actually have 100,000 gallons of water in, per acre in the soil at the root zone for our crops. That, and we have very good data now showing that these systems yield, have higher yields in droughts than um, systems with low amounts of organic matter. The other thing that it does, it, it keeps the soil, uh, stops it from eroding. It, it gives it, uh, it's better for holding nutrients. It increases yields. This, this really is a win-win. And in the process of increasing soil organic matter, because soil organic matter is mostly carbon, we, we're actually taking carbon out of the atmosphere, the carbon dioxide, and and storing it in the soil. So while we're building resilience, we are also reversing climate change. Um, so one thing I just want to, before we plunge into that thought, I just want to double back. And do you have any um, numbers in terms of what um, you said, what the, the carbon or, or the soil organic matter used to be um, in the past? But do you have any comparisons between organic operations and conventional operations or anything like that? Yes, we do. One of the things that we started doing after the Copenhagen meeting was getting good scientific data, rigorous data that, that, that could be published in peer-reviewed journals. And what we find is on average, organic farms tend to increase the amount of, uh, uh, say, soil organic matter or, or actually the amount of carbon, carbon in the soil by the equivalent of about 2,000 um, pounds of uh, carbon dioxide per acre per year, the average conventional farm 
you're still losing soil organic matter. Okay. But, you know, the better ones are, say, losing around 500 pounds per acre wow. or more. Um, Others we know, we have some good data showing, you know, could be equivalent of about 36,000 pounds of uh, carbon dioxide per acre. Yeah, so there is a a quantifiable difference and it's quite a difference. Um, Yes. So so in terms of uh, just the basics, how does carbon sequestration work in the soil? Put it simply, when, when plants photosynthesize, they're taking carbon dioxide from the air and water and combining it together to make sugars, simple sugars. And those sugars are then modified, to, for instance, to make carbohydrates, you know, starches. They, uh, you can modify them again slightly and turn them into hydrocarbons, which are oils, fats. They can be modified slightly by adding nitrogen or, or uh, uh, sulfur, and you make amino acids, our proteins, our hormones. So this is the actual uh, molecule of life. But as plants grow, they actually shed a certain amount of that carbon into the soil through their roots. And some of them are are bits of broken root or parts of roots as they grow. Other ones are compounds that they, they use to change the pH or as lubricants to make it easy for roots to work through the soil. And other ones we know are there to feed the beneficial microbes in the soil. And that builds soil health. So over the life of a plant, what we say is about 30%, one-third of the carbon dioxide that the leaf absorbs will be deposited into the soil by the roots. So, And then there's another third, of course, which are the roots themselves. Um, so based on that, is it safe to assume that the larger a plant is, the more carbon it will sequester, and the longer it stays in the soil, the more carbon it will sequester? Okay, the more, the more carbon it will sequester, but staying in the soil is the, the problematic one. It's, you know, a lot of it can then um, be eaten or consumed by microbes, and as they consume it, they, they turn it back into carbon dioxide. It goes back into the atmosphere. This is the, you know, the real issue here where a lot of farming systems actually produce more carbon dioxide than they fix, than the plants fix. And this is where we have to change farming from one that is a net emitter of carbon dioxide or greenhouse gases to ones that sequester. And how do we do that? Look, there's a whole range of strategies. One of the ones we're finding now is that the synthetic nitrogen fertilizers are probably the major cause of this. What happens is that when you add nitrogen into the soil, it stimulates microbes and they chew the carbon and turn it into carbon dioxide. And that is because microbes have a, most of them have a carbon to nitrogen ratio of about 15 to 1 to 30 to 1. So essentially for every pound of nitrogen you put in, it's about 15 pounds of carbon that get chewed up and, mm. and, and put into the atmosphere. So we need to have nitrogen sources that are also carbon sources. So we, one of the best things to reverse it is to use legumes. 
and use them as, as uh, either our, our cash crops or cover crops in between our cash crops. And for cover crops, legumes would be things like vetch or peas. And for cash exactly soybeans, you know, if you want to um, mung beans, there are a whole range of other beans that, that, that you know that you could use that you can earn an income from. The, the better farmers I know, they they put in the you know their cover crops are also cash crops, so it's a win-win. And you know, but vetches are good, just particularly you know for over winter. And then you can actually, you know, some of the work that Rodale, the Rodale Institute in Pennsylvania has done is showing how you can actually then roll them and just use no-till equipment to plant um, corn into the vetch. And you've got all that nitrogen and minimal disturbance, uh, very quick to prepare the, the, uh, the, the soil, the, the, the field. So the actual cost of doing it is a fraction of the cost of what is needed to plough up and plant a field. And this is the other thing that we're doing now, we're actually looking at systems that cost less to do, and the yields we're starting to get from these systems are higher than the average. Um, in trying to sort of put more of a, draw more of a picture on this, do you use any, um, is your orchard by chance? Um, a, and it, something we can exemplify and talk a little bit about. Do you um, do any integrative planning, um, planting or anything that would be an example? Yes. My orchard is probably a very good example of this. I, I have a, 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 a ground cover of what we call mixed sward of different flowers, legumes and plants that uh, will give me all my nitrogen, for instance. I, I don't have to put any nitrogen. It's fixed for free. Uh, you know, in my orchard, I went from you know less than one percent soil organic matter to six percent now, which is my new equilibrium in eleven years. Wow. You know, so, you know, we know lots of examples. If you get the right system, we can increase soil organic matter quite quickly. And, and part of that mix, you know, as well as getting my nitrogen for free, I. Uh, keep the soil stable. We're in an area that gets, we get a lot of rain. We, we get um, about uh, 150 inches where I am. Wow. So we need to keep the soil covered so it doesn't erode. And also we, I use flowering plants as the host plants for the beneficial insects, the insects that eat the pests. And now I get all my pest control. I don't have to spray even organic sprays now. Um, so this, it sounds like you're farming in a way that you would call regenerative agriculture. Do you think that um, yeah. by using these practices and adopting them on a large scale, it is possible to reverse climate change? And what, and if so, like what, how do we make that happen on um, in terms of the adoption on a large scale? Look, 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 that's a really good question, and, and the answer is yes. We, we, we're calling these systems regenerative now. These are the systems that build up soil organic matter, that re restore ecosystems, that build resilience into farming, and there's a whole range of them. You know. So you know, organic farming is one, permaculture, agroecology, holistic grazing. What we're trying to do is bring all the different forms of regenerative farming together 
and that, that, that is working really well. In fact, we brought a lot of them to Paris. And how do we scale it up? Look, we do have very good examples. We can do it at any, any scale from a few acres to thousands and thousands of acres. We know how to do it. We have people already doing it. So what, what we think is very important is to get this information out and you know, inform farmers that, that, you know, that it is possible. We are working with governments, and can I say particularly the French government now, they, in Paris they launched an initiative called Four for 1000. And what their scientists worked out is if we could, every year we could get a, 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 an increase in soil carbon, just four parts of, of 1000 in the world's agricultural lands, we could reverse climate change. It's as simple as that. And we know how to get much better, much higher rates of increases in carbon in the soil. So it's part of this initiative now. 30 countries around the world have joined in. The main United Nations farming organizations, such as the United Nations Food and Agriculture, the International Fund for Agricultural Development, have joined. The, the main international research groups, the CGIRA, that they have joined. The Global Environmental Fund has joined. They've actually put close to a billion dollars on the table in this initiative to start scaling it up. So we're, 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 we are very hopeful that we're seeing a major initiative with many countries and the United Nations getting behind, getting this information out to farmers so we can change agriculture into one that sequesters carbon, to take agriculture from being a problem to a solution. And it is a win-win because not only are we reversing climate change now, we are making a more resilient and productive agriculture. It's a, it's a true win for the farmers as well. So when, when you say that a country signs up um, to try and help their farmers make the switch or give them resources, what exactly holds them to that, um, that pledge? Look, they can make, it, it's, it's, it's fairly open. They can look at how they want to do it. Uh, different countries have different strategies. My, my country, Australia, we actually have a carbon farming initiative where the government actually pays farmers for uh, sequestering carbon. You know, for instance, California has one as well. And there's no reason why California couldn't just sign up with its, its own initiative. It doesn't have to do anything except for just put its initiative on the table. And then this becomes a formal initiative under under the what's called the Lima Paris Accord, which is one of the formal mechanisms of the United Nations, um, you know, climate change um, sort of the, the strategy for, for strategies for dealing with climate change. Um. Well, it's great to hear that you have um, such a hopeful report coming out of Paris last year. Um, and I, I hope that we can um, we can see some of the the groundwork start to happen. What I mean in terms of time, uh, the agriculture, um, especially perennial agriculture like you're doing, obviously takes time to see developments and to make changes. So what 
What, how quickly can people respond and implement these strategies on the ground? Basically, almost overnight. We, we know how to do them for every single system. So in my case, I'm perennial uh, agricultural, perennial horticulture. But we know how to do it with cropping systems. We have very good data, and, and, and particularly actually for, for the northeast of the USA, you know, thanks to the Rodale Institute. So we, we know that systems that farmers could change to tomorrow, where they go from you know, the farm is emitting carbon dioxide to where every year it's putting, uh, those farms are putting about 3,500 pounds of it into the soil per acre. It's not hard to do. And, you know, they, they could change tomorrow and start doing that. It's, it's, it's simple. You know, for other parts of the world where you have extensive grazing, we know how to do that as well. We have that information. We have very good examples of it. You know, for instance, in the southwest, in Arizona, we know California. You know, we, we have the data on how to do it in virtually every farming climate and system. Well, great. So um, it's time to switch gears. First, we're going to start with a quick break. And when we return, we're going to dig into your most recent book, um, The Myths of Safe Pesticides. Stay tuned. Okay. Today's program is brought to you by Thurman Maple Days. Celebrate flowing of sap in the Adirondacks, self-guiding to seven sites for talks, tours, tastes, and old-fashioned friendliness. Maple syrup lovers unite. How was maple syrup made 100 years ago? What are the current practices? What are sugar shacks? Visit Thurman County and go on the maple syrup tour of a lifetime for three glorious weekends to celebrate the start of spring and the end of cabin fever. ThurmanMapleDays.com has all the information you need. Watch sap being gathered and boiled and see how a certified tree farm makes maximum use of the wood from maple and other trees. Enjoy a whole day of fun activities, demonstrations, sampling, and shopping for delectable goodies, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. each day. Like pancakes? Of course you like pancakes. Pancake breakfast at Valley Road Maple Farm is available each day, beginning at 9 a.m. and running until 1 p.m., so you won't have to miss a minute of tour time. If you can already taste the maple syrup, visit ThurmanMapleDays.com to find out more. This is The Farm Report. I'm your host, Holly Cedarholm, and my guest today is Andre Loy, an organic farmer and author of The Myths of Safe Pesticides, published in 2014. Before the break, we were talking about climate change in agriculture, and now we're going to talk a little bit um, about pesticides. So your book um, set forth to debunk five myths surrounding pesticide use. Um, I would like to briefly touch upon each of these myths and some of the truths that you've dispelled, um, starting with the rigorously tested myth. What, what can you tell us about the testing regime of pesticides before they're allowed for use? Everybody's under the impression that most chemicals are tested. The fact that most aren't 
pesticides actually do have more testing than other chemicals. But the majority of people in the scientific community regard that testing as completely inadequate. So when, for instance, when a, when a farmer buys a pesticide or, or if you're using it as bug spray around the house, it is a mixture of different ingredients. But they only have to test one of those ingredients, not all of them, the one that they nominate as the active ingredient, oh. and that, that gets tested. But there can be different solvents and adjuvants and other chemicals which are also toxic in it, and they're not tested. The fact is that the complete formulation that is sold and used it is not tested, or it's sometimes tested for what we call acute toxicity, that is, how much will kill you in two weeks. Uh, you know, after exposure. But when we're looking at the long-term chronic diseases such as cancer or uh, nerve damage, uh, damage particularly to, to developing children with um, heart disease, you know, hormone disruption, uh, damage to our what we call epigenetics, which now we understand is very important. Uh, in fact, when we look at this sort of uh, you know, what we call epidemic of chronic diseases, there is virtually no testing of the formulations that are used. Um. That has to change. And Europe now is going to start looking at that now to, 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 to evaluate and test the whole formulation, not, not, not just this one. Yeah, it's it's troubling that the whole formulation isn't tested because it seems like um, even if all those active, the active ingredient and the non-active ingredients were tested singly, there's the um, the likelihood that when they interact together, they could perform um, very differently than the single components. Um, so this brings up. This brings up the the one of your other myths. I'm jumping out of out of order as how they're sequenced in the book, but the reliable regulatory authority. So, um, who is? And I, I'm sure this probably changes when we're talking about it on an international scope. But who is overseeing the release and use of pesticides, and why? I mean, maybe that could. Why are they not um, being tested rigorously? Look, this this is a very big issue. One of the things which it actually shocked me the way regulatory authorities work. So uh, it's regulatory authorities, of course, are national or state-based or both. And so in the USA, you have the EPA. In you know, Europe, they have the European Food Safety Authority. Now, the big trouble with what I've learned is that they only use the studies that are submitted by the pesticide companies. They tend to ignore the hundreds and hundreds, in fact, we've got thousands of studies on pesticides that independent scientists have done and published in scientific journals and they're peer-reviewed. Now, peer-reviewed is the gold standard in scientific publications. These other studies are not peer-reviewed, or very, you know, maybe a few of them are, but only a handful. Most are not published, and most we can't even get access to because they are commercial in confidence. So we don't know what's in these studies, and we also don't know how these studies were evaluated. On top of that, we know that many of these committees that do the evaluation have people with um, links 
very strong links to the pesticide industry. So what we're seeing now is these secret studies submitted by the pesticide industry are being evaluated by panels that have people from the pesticide industry on it. That, to me, is a complete conflict of interest yes. and is not fair, open and transparent science. What, what we need is a completely transparent system. We have the right to know what studies were used and what decisions were made about those studies before poisons are put on our food. And we are being denied that right. And that, that, that is wrong. So Maybe these poisons are safe, but until we have a transparent system where other scientists and, and consumers can look at it and make these decisions, uh, you know, we, we have no open data to show that these decisions are good and that these chemicals are safe. And um, in the meanwhile, without the open data, the pesticides are... Um, being used um, and the two myths that sort of apply to the usage of pesticides that you um, have in in your book are that they're um, being utilized in very small amounts and this is my personal favorite that they break down so maybe you could um, expand on those two myths a little bit yeah look look, you hear it all the time yes there's, there's pesticide residues but you'd have to eat a truckload to be affected and that's based on this concept of what we call acute toxicity. And, and they're right, you'd have to eat a truckload to, to, to die within two weeks of it. But in terms of what would happen with cancer or disruptions to our hormonal reproductive systems, uh, particularly to developing children, they are wrong and very wrong. And one of the things that they do when they're evaluating the poison of uh, so the, the, the toxic effect of pesticides is they do animal feeding studies and then from there they try to establish what's called a no observable effects level. And they say, look, at this level it doesn't cause any adverse effects. And, but that also, that, that system now is very discredited. But what they do then is they say, look, then... We've found at this level it's safe. Now, if we make it, make it even lower than that, 10 times lower, we've got, we have a, an even bigger margin of safety. And, and that sounds very reasonable. But what we know now is that for many chemicals, we know about 600 of them now, that when they go down lower, they start to act like hormones and they, and they disrupt our hormone, endocrine mm. system. They're called endocrine disruptors. And this has major effects on, you know, for instance, fertility. Many of them act as, uh, you know, as synthetic estrogens. We know, for instance, that 80% of breast cancers, for instance, are estrogen-sensitive. So some chemicals, for instance, that uh, glyphosate, the active ingredient in Roundup, we know at parts per trillion that causes the multiplication of estrogen-sensitive breast cancer cells. We know there's, there's many other pesticides that do that. Now, what is a part per trillion? If I had three Olympic-sized swimming pools full of water and I put one drop in it, that's a part per trillion. Or another one, just say I had a train, a train with uh, you know, the, the round water um, 
containers to carriages, you know, transporting water. Yeah. And that was 10 miles long. And I added a drop of water to it. That's a part per trillion. So that is how small we know it can affect, for instance, the formation of cancer. You know, particularly with children, uh, many of these hormones are needed in parts per trillion. They actually send signals to the genes to turn on and off to develop the brain, for instance, or develop arms or limbs or develop our reproductive system or, you know, other parts of our metabolism. Now, if at particular times in the development of the unborn child that that is disrupted, that event um, goes wrong. In other words, we call them programming events. And so if we have another chemical in parts per trillion that works like a hormone, that stops the normal development of these metabolic nervous systems and nervous systems and hormone systems in children. That's really, really quite scary. So in terms of you've done a great job at illustrating what a part per trillion might look like, do you have any idea as to what the actual exposure is to, to people through, we could say glyphosate or another pesticide through um, consumption of, of their food? Um, yes. Look, what we're, what we're finding now that the major route for most people, most people don't live on farms now majority of people live now, 50, uh, 51% of people live in cities. And we know now that the majority of people get their pesticide exposure from food. And there's very good studies, for instance, now showing that you know, some of the uh, major pesticide groups, such as the organophosphates, and particular uh, chlorpyrifos, that we know now that you know, mom just eating a normal diet that, that the small amounts can cross the placenta and they cause damage to the, the normal development of the brain of a child. We have very good data on that. And that, that chemical should have been banned decades ago. So, um, so it is showing up on the food. So that brings me again to the one of the other myths we haven't talked about is the breakdown myth. So, um, why are these pesticides on the reaching people on their food, and what, why is there this? You know, uh, it kind of goes against this myth that it'll it'll break down or it's you. Yeah. Look, you're right, Holly. What you know, we're told, oh, look, the new chemicals are much better than the old ones. They, they don't persist in the environment. That we know now is rubbish. Uh, that some of them, you know, they persist for a very long time. And and the thing is, this is if they didn't persist, why do we need MRLs, maximum residue levels, on our food? And why do we have to have acceptable daily intakes? And that is because they do persist. And in the United States, we know that around 70% of foods have at least one pesticide residue, and around 50% have two or more. They have these cocktails. And we also know that these cocktails of small amounts of pesticides are synergistic. They can actually, synergistic is <laughs> one and one can equal, you know, one and one instead of equaling two will equal three, four, five. In some cases, we know one and one can equal 1,000 in toxicity. Oh, my with God. With the data we have now. So, we're, and we're finding that 
you know, for instance, in the USA, the blood of most Americans tested has a cocktail of these chemicals. And I think one of the most disturbing was testing done by the Environmental Working Group that found up to 232 chemicals in the cord blood, the placental cord blood of newborns. Now, this, this should be putting alarm bells up. You know, sending alarm bells to all the the authorities dealing with it is clearly unacceptable. Yeah, so, it, it seems. So one, I just want to say they're not breaking yeah. down. They're persistent and everywhere in the environment, and that includes in our bodies and in our children's bodies. And we're getting most of that f- from our food. The other one is they go all oh, when they break. You know, they, they break down very quickly. We actually know that many of them become more toxic when they break down. They just don't disappear. So, for instance, the organophosphates, on average, can be 100 times more toxic as it breaks down when they form these oxones. They oxidize, and they are more persistent. So in many of these foods, the longer you keep it, the worse it is. So one... Can the um, one thing that I'm constantly the question that I'm constantly getting from friends of mine in terms of when they're shopping for organic versus conventional, they always ask, um, "Can I wash off the pesticide pesticide residue? Can I peel it away?" And it sounds like the answer is no. The answer is largely no. Many of these pesticides are, are systemic. What happens is they the plant or fruit absorbs it. And it's inside it, it's all through it, so that when the insect bites the plant, it dies. Now, an example of that are the um, pesticides that are used to stop fruit flies. The, you know, they dip the fruit in it, and it's in, the pesticide is inside. Now, the pesticide doesn't kill the eggs of the fruit fly. It has to be strong enough and last long enough, and that's up to two weeks, so that when those eggs hatch, there's enough poison in the fruit to kill the larvae. So, you know, we're not talking about minute amounts. We're talking about the fact that that poison is still active enough to kill any insects that hatch within the fruit. Yeah. And yet, oh, that's okay. It's safe for our children. No, it's not. So that's and this, that. That's shocking yeah, look, to me. Another, another one, for instance, like this is the... Um, nicotinoids, they've been in the news a lot because of their links with the decline in in bees and also birds. Yeah. But we also know too with with these nicotinoids, when they break down, they become far more toxic. And and like the organophosphates, they're systemic. You can't wash them off. They're inside the food. And you have to ask, what are we doing feeding our children? daily doses of these toxic nicotine-like substances. Well, so I think one of the reasons that people turn a blind eye or, or have until more recently, I feel like lots and lots of people are becoming to um, just really get more into food and where their food is coming from and have larger concerns about health. But so for a long time, I think people kind of ignored these inherent risks because of the last myth that you present and they um, that I haven't covered yet. <laughs> the, belie- okay. the believing in this last myth where p- pesticides are essential for farming. Um, if we, you know, if we don't use them, we're not going to be able to have food on our table. So, are pesticides essential to farming and feeding um, the the masses of people that we have on this planet? 
manager, I'll say categorically, no, they are not needed. Not in the way they use at the moment. Look, you know, we, we're told if the world went organic, we would starve. The, the fact is, at the moment, you know, organic systems get slightly lo lower yields. Uh, on average, those yields are 80% of conventional. The and, and what I'd have to say is that, you know, from my point of view as being an organic farmer for 40 years, we've had no scientific help. We've been largely ignored. That we as farmers have worked out how to get, you know, pretty good yields as close to the conventional average without the trillions of dollars that have been spent on the scientific research to get, you know, to, to, to get the current yields. And I'd also have to argue that these trillions of dollars that have been spent, if all they've managed to do is get a 20% higher yield than what we get in organic and what we've worked out by ourselves, that's a pretty poor use of that money. Yeah, it's, a, it's not a On great margin. On the other margin. hand, we are now starting to get research into organic. Not much. You know, we, work, we worked out that for every $1,000 spent on research, less than $5 gets spent on organic. But the results we are getting now is organic is getting equal and higher yields than conventional. And so, we've got you know, some very good work in the United States. Um, A good one, for instance, is people go to the Rodale Institute in Pennsylvania. They are getting equal and higher yields consistently. And we're doing it at lower cost. This is another really important thing for farmers. Farmers are struggling. They've have to buy all these pesticides, buy all these uh, fertilizers and chemicals to try and get this, um, this yield or maintain yield. We can now show them how to get equal and higher yields without these costs so that well, it makes farmers more viable. Well, one thing I do want to point out is that one of the myths that I find inorganic as an organic grower is that organic bans all pesticide use, which is which is not true. There are pesticides that are approved for organic systems, and you've said you've largely on your farm been able to to do without them, and I know many other farms do that too. But so why? Um, what is the difference between the organic pesticides? Um, just briefly, like what what's the difference there? I know that they're not systemic the way that, or I believe they're not systemic the way conventional pesticides are. And but just are they are these safe? Yeah, look, look thanks. That's a really good question because that's one of the ones we get all the time. Well, organic uses pesticides, and then they say these are worse than conventional ones. So um, yes, we use pesticides and. They are not more dangerous. I've been involved in sitting in on standards committees where we look at these pesticides. So, number one, they have to be from natural systems, natural sources. So, for instance, so, you know, if it's natural pyrethins, it comes from the pyrethins flower. They, uh, we know that they rapidly break down and biodegrade, and this is a really important one. So you know, something like pyrethrins again, it's usually broken down within 24 hours. They have virtually no mammalian toxicity. In other words, they, they're toxic to, to animals, but to mammals, to us, uh, usually our body temperature will break them down. So, but the really critical thing is because these are not residual, there are no residues on the food that people buy. Yes, they may be used in the production system, and the organic farmers themselves have to take care at that point of spraying, 
But by the time they get to market, there are no residues. And that is the main concern for consumers. We do not use anything that will cause problems for our consumers. Our consumers are the most important people in the world to us. So I feel like I could... um keep you on the line all day and talk more about this, but uh, I just want to have one um, final thought from you in terms of, so how um, how do you recommend, um, well, first, I think people should read your book if they want to learn more, um, the myths of safe pesticides, but how should people be eating? How should they be taking care of themselves and their families? Would you do, say, shop organic exclusively? Like, what is your strategy for people to try and avoid... Um, some of the the health risks that you've outlined? Look, I, I would say organically, exclusively, um, you know, join, for instance, look, look for the USDA logo. I think that's very important because most people get their pesticides from food and particularly for children and particularly for moms and dads. What we know now is that, you know, they, these pesticides cross the placental barrier. We find them in breast milk. We need to give our children their best start in life. Our children are precious. You know, for me, I think, and for most of us, the most important thing, the most wonderful thing we've ever done is be parents. And I think that's, that's where we owe it to the next generation to give them their best start in life. And, you know, so some people, you know, just to go and to your local shop where possible and get, you know, a plant, you know, food with the USDA certification logo. But, you know, farmers markets are lovely and it's just a wonderful way to, sh- way to shop and meet people. Go, go to farmers markets and get to know the farmers there and buy, buy fresh and local. And another great way is to join a CSA, you know, consumer-supported agriculture. And you have lots of really good CSAs in New York State. And, you know, um, all through New York State. And join one of those, and that way you get fresh seasonal food. You know, it, it can work out cheaper yeah, and you by can, doing it this way. Cheaper so, than buying food in the supermarket, and it's fresh, it's local, it's seasonal. And they can you support. Know, get better than they that. can support some climate smart farming from their local farmers while they're at it. So, um, thank you yeah, again. Exactly. <laughs> while you while you improve your health, your, 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 your dollars are reversing climate change. You know that that, that that's a real win win. Yeah, I think so. Um, so, Andre, thank you so much for joining me today and for getting up a little bit earlier than you're used to. I, I assume. Um, <laughs> so um, it's a little bit, but it's fine. I'm, I'm an early bird, so it's not a problem. Oh, well, thanks again. Um, and that's the end of another episode of The Farm Report. And thank you all for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.